0: Panulti. Hello, my name is Marisol. Welcome to Perspectives from Abiyayala and Beyond, broadcasting to the facilities of Trent Radio. In this bilingual space, we promote our indigenous ways of thinking and living oriented to community well-being from all over the Yala. This radio show is produced on the traditional territory of the Michisagic peoples of the Anishinaabek nation. This place is known as Nogojiwanong, and is encompassed by Treaty Twenty and the Williams Treaty. As an immigrant, I am grateful for the opportunity to be here, and I thank all the generations of people who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. I recognize and deeply appreciate their historic connection to this place. Para las personas que nos están escuchando en países donde se habla español, gracias por sintonizarnos y bienvenidos a este programa de radio que se llama perspectivas desde Abya Yala y más allá. Mi nombre es Marisol y estoy emitiendo a través de la estructura de Trent Radio, inspirada en la idea de promover la práctica del buen vivir y convivir desde las múltiples perspectivas indígenas que han poblado este continente por miles de años. Este programa está producido en el territorio tradicional del pueblo Michizagig de la nación Anishinabe en Nogojiwanong, que está incluido en el Tratado 20 y el Tratado Williams y actualmente es conocido como Peterborough, Canadá. Como inmigrante en este territorio, estoy agradecida con todas las generaciones de personas que han cuidado de este por miles de años y reconozco y aprecio profundamente su conexión con este lugar. Good evening. Tonight I am talking with Bobby Henry, who is a community member of Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Bobby holds a Master of Education degree from Lakehead University and is currently part of the Faculty of Education at Brock University and a doctoral researcher in Indigenous Studies at Trent University. Bobby specializes in Indigenous education, Indigenous language reclamation, Indigenous identity, decolonization, and Haudenosaunee knowledge and systems. He is passionate in incorporating Indigenous knowledge into teaching, learning, social justice, and transformative education, and I am honored to have him as our guest tonight. In the following 50 minutes, I will present Bobby in Spanish, and then he will share with us, in English, his perspectives and reflections about how of knowledge, and specifically, the relevance of the Cayuga language. After our conversation, I will share a brief summary of Bobby's perspectives in Spanish. Buenas noches. Esta noche estoy hablando con Bobby Henry, quien es miembro de la Comunidad de las Seis Naciones del Territorio del Río Grande, que está ubicado en lo que también se conoce ahora como la provincia de Ontario, en Canadá. Bobby tiene una maestría en Educación por la Universidad de Lakehead y actualmente es parte de de la Facultad de Educación de la Universidad de Brock. También es investigador del doctorado en Estudios Indígenas en Trent University. Bobby se especializa en la educación indígena específicamente en la recuperación de los idiomas indígenas y en temas de descolonización a través de la promoción de los conocimientos de de la cultura Haudenosaunee. A Bobby le apasiona incorporar el conocimiento indígena en la enseñanza, el aprendizaje, la justicia social y en lo que él llama la educación transformadora y me siento honrada de tenerlo como nuestro invitado esta noche. En los siguientes 50 minutos, Bobby compartirá con nosotros en inglés sus perspectivas y reflexiones sobre el conocimiento haudenosaunee y específicamente la relevancia del idioma Cayuga. Después de nuestra charla en inglés, compartiré con ustedes una pequeña reseña en español. Hello, Bobby. Thank you so much for talking with us tonight. Um, I wanted to ask you first, who are you and how did you come here?
1: Do you want the short version or do you want the long version?
0: The long version.
1: <laughs> okay, so everyone will be set to listen for an hour of introductions. I'm I'm just kidding. I'm a very comical person. <laughs> uh, scanner. Canada man has new wax on there. Uh, dewan he ga newage shoda. Kayuk hono newakwanzo da. Ospega twagatengya. Um, gaikono neha gata saniyangwai ho da. Get kaw, ga ga dewayas. Ne kwata University Agriho uh, de uh, Trent University um, so greetings everyone I uh, just introduced myself in the language that I speak the uh, Neha which is the Kyuga language a language of the that comes from one of the five nations six nations that make up the Haudenosaunee Confederacy uh, my traditional name he goes over town English I'm known as Bobby and my clan is Baldir. Nation is Cayuga. I come from the territory of six nations of the Grand River Territory. I work at Brock University as a long-term appointment and faculty in the, Depart- and the Department of Educational Studies. I am learning Cayuga language. I'm always learning Cayuga. I'm, I'm, I am always learning Cayuga language and our are what we're taught to believe, which we call original instructions. And I'm also a PhD student here at Trent University. Uh, and I, I want to take a little time to speak about what I just said in my language. So first and foremost, part of my research, both in the program, the PhD program, as well as my portfolio in working at Brock University is the uh, Gaya or the indigenous languages, more particular. And it's important to tell this story, talk about the reality that we face as speakers of Neha. So I identify as a second language learner. So Neha, the, the Kiyuga language, was something that I picked up from kindergarten and lasted to grade 12, and I continued my learning since then. And the current state of it, according to census data in Canada, says that first language speakers of this language are about 50 people in the entire world who speak this language. The the remainder I believe it's 150 to about 200 people who also speak it are people like myself and who are also more strong, more stronger in fluency, who have more fluency than I do. So second language learners as well who learn this language in addition to picking it up, in addition to having the English language as their primary language. And I tell this reality because Cayuga language, you can't find this language anywhere else in the world. When you search uh, the Cayuga Nation in particular, they, the ancestral homelands is in upstate New York along the Finger Lakes region. That's the that ancestral homelands of where, I, where I, my ancestors come from and where I come from. Um, more early on, going back to migrations before, the American Revolution, which is a whole other story in itself. But and want to tell people about the language. Uh, can you go, can you find this language anywhere else in the world? And the question is no. And I tell people and help them understand it. If you, if, if the French language, for example, in Canada were to ever disappear from this country, or there's challenges that uh, prohibit the continuation and transmission of the French language. People can go back to France to learn language or there's a whole territory of people where that's the primary language spoken. Or in the same goes for Spanish. If all the countries stop speaking Spanish that are connected to Spain, they can go back to Spain where the language comes from. Cayuga language, there's no other place in the world you can. And with 50 speakers, whose mother tongue is Cayuga? it shows you how, what state that we are in as people. So my role is to speak it as well as to show language has a place within society and we need to learn our languages and here's why. Going back to my introduction, uh, when you break it into its root word, so you, you do a root word method, you deconstruct a word to see the etymology of language. Uh, Kiyuga language, among other indigenous languages, is a verb-based language. Why it's a verb-based language? Because our peoples understand, it's a manifestation of our worldview of nature and how I tell people the, the sun always moves Or if you want to say it's the opposite, the the earth actually spins It's a matter of perception. We see the sun goes across the sky, right? We see the grandfather, thunder beings come from the west and they bring, they move. There's a lot of movement in the world, right? Everything in the world itself is in constant flux. So our languages resemble that. The noun of my word is Ganada, which is the same word that's actually used for Canada. That it's anglicized Ganada because it goes back to Jacques Cartier, the, the European explorer. Uh, ganada is the root word for that. So Hanada is like his, his, he, his town. The the hands part of it refers to like to going over, moving over the town. And that itself paints a different picture than if you were to just use it as a simple noun. And there's a whole... Worldview view embedded within our language. That's just one word. And thousands of our words are very much along that same line. And my name also comes from the clan, which leads into the Wenhega, the Baldir clan. So Haudenosaunee are a matrilineal society. So our clans are determined by what our mother's clans are. My father, he's a big deer clan from the Anadaga nation, but my mother is a bald deer clan from the Keeva nation. So I, along with my siblings, are also of the same clan. And me being a male, for example, when I have children, their clan, according to our customs, will follow the mother. So it, it, it's, it's a matrilineal society. And my nieces, my sister's children, they're all of the same clan and how that kinship works and it, this is again it's unpacking these words it's a ball deer it's what it means it curls like a ball the the word we have in cayuga language and that they went hey god that that N that e and, and glottal h part of the word the noun describes that ball it curls into a ball is what it describes it's that particular clan of the deer the ball deer clan and and our structure, it's something that we're, we're bringing forward into the contemporary times due to colonization and introduction of uh, policies like the Indian Act that change, forever changed our identity here in Canada. Not forever changed it in a negative sense, but it kind of made us question ourselves. And it was, forced, it was forced onto us. So we had to not accept it, but we were forced to accept it. And some people kept the customs alive but what had happened for many for also many reasons is the family structure deteriorated over time it when it started was when we moved from our traditional longhouse families which would have been one clan living in a single home composed of different families living in one home to the more nuclear style homes where you have a father and a mother and her and the children it it put pressure on the family and it started to to change the family. So going back hundreds of years, this is is a process that's long-term. So some of our ancestors and grandparents managed to hold out to these teachings, but there's a lot of people within our territories and nations who are bringing forward these structures of clans. And one example that how I kind of use it is anyone in the Baldir clan of Kiyugan nation, uh, they're after around the same age as myself, I call them like my relatives, they're equivalent to your brother or sister. That's like how close that kinship is. And there's a couple of families I know in six nations that are of the same clan. They're biologically, we're, we don't have connections, but according to our kinship structures in the clan system, Haudenosaunee clan system, we we are relatives to one another. They are my siblings, mm-hmm. and if there's anyone older, they are my aunts or uncles, right? And if there's anyone younger, they are my nieces or nephews, according to the mother, if it's the mother's children. So that's one way in which the clans are being. It's a resurgence of the clan system. It's never been completely eradicated. It's been it's been is under stress due to colonization, but it's being brought forward. More importantly, what I like about speaking my clan too, it also connects to, like I said, it acknowledges the roles of women, right? That's that that reclamation of uh, women, woman, womanhood in our in our territories. It's upholding that tradition that we, the Indian Act, changed it to follow the fathers, but through honoring this, it's actually reclaiming that lineage or that structure of clan system that we have. More importantly, it touches on my lineage too. Like it's, it speaks to who my mother's mother is, who my grandmother's mother is, who my great grandmother's mother is. So, and it keeps going up the generations, right? It, it speaks to that lineage. And more importantly, um, when you speak about, in, in my case, for example, Dewan He got also connected to one of our hereditary chiefs in our confederacy. So my uncle is what we call a condoled hereditary chief of the Haudenosaunee confederacy, which is comprised of 50 hereditary chiefs. So I also come from that family. And that in itself positions me. There's a micro level and there's a macro level. Micro, micro level is the clan system itself or the clan that I'm a part of macro level is within our nationhood, not just as a Cayuga nation, but as with other nations within the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So clans is a very packed, it's very charged, It's there's a lot of a lot of learning that takes place into understanding the clan. And for me, I also look at that it's one example where clans have that responsibility that's attached to it. They're not just so much oh, I'm of, a deer, I'm of the deer clan. It's also about what is my responsibility as a person of the deer clan. And that is also connected to with the grieving ceremonies, which is a whole other a conversation. But knowing this stuff is important for myself because it really uh, it grounds me as a person, right? It, it gives me a sense of responsibility. It makes me feel... Part of the collective, it makes me find a place within society. It, it really solidifies who I am as a person within our territories and our nations, right? That, that's that clan. So I introduce that clan. That's what I'm acknowledging. All of that stuff I had just explained. It's all within that simple thing of acknowledging your clan. The next one, Kona, uh, which is people. There's a couple of translations I've heard personally people of the great swamp and people of the clay pipes. And I'll unpack those words and what it means. So the kohono part of it, gohono at the end is, or hono is like the the verb to say that it's like a belonging to. So onondagehono is our other word for uh, the Onondaga Nation. They are of the hills, people of the hills. Onondagehono, right? That's that's the Onondaga Nation. Ganyan people of the people of the Flint, referring to the Mohawk Nation on the on the eastern part of our territories, traditional territories. So, where this word comes from, as what I had said earlier, when looking to the Finger Lakes region, that was a location in which the Cayuga Nation had resided and had became the nation of before, when leading up to the creation of the Great Haudenosaunee great law of peace, which is, again, that's another whole conversation in itself, like the late Jake Thomas could speak about it for 60, like close to 70 hours of like footage, right? That's how long he could speak to it in English, not let alone uh, Mohawk or Cayuga. So once the law had been created, our ancestors, the Cayuga nation had uh, been located there. And that speaks to my ancestral homelands and why. I speak to that. Uh, let's let's kind of let's go back to a little bit here. Why why it's important? Initially, we need to all, we need to look at indigenous peoples. This is something I had said with previous talks, and I believe you you heard me say this before, Marisol. That we as indigenous peoples are extensions of the land that uh, like I said, our language is an extension of the land, our political structure, governance, economy, everything's to do with land. And land is where we always begin with ourselves. And that's where we, that that's, we're part of the land. And that's what we, in our barrier process, that's why we bury our deceased in the ground. It's that, that recipe, <clears throat> pardon me. It is that reciprocity of giving back to the land. that's again, Why do we, there's another question, why do we do that as well? In our creation story, it talks about that, right? When the earth, when people were made, the creator, he used that, they say the red soil, and he morphed that body and breathed life into the body, and that body began to move. So we come from the earth, and we bury our deceased in the earth. And I like one, I was watching a video by a talk, Rick Hale from Six Nations, and he talked about how, how when we look at land and that perspective, the bearing of it, that our body, the body, the physical vessel we use to live decomposes and then that turns into minerals, that turns into soil that then is in, in every blade of grass that we have now. So when we say we're of the land, that's an example of it. We were part of that and our ancestors come from the land and why we are so important that, like I said, when we look at treaties and we start looking at treaties through that angle, there's that's we didn't have an understanding of private property of ownership of land because our ancestors are, are alive in the land, right? That's that vessel. They, they don't necessarily like for us, death isn't about an end. It's about a transition or um, a moving through phases of our life, right? We, we have spirit, the physical vessel then travels back into the land and then a new life is born out of the land. So when you speak about, Kiyuga nation people in the clay pipes. And I think of that territory that like that, that's where my ancestors are resting. That's where, that's the land that I come from. That's, that's my, that's where my roots are as a person of the Kiyuga nation. And where clay pipes come from is, is used to, again, to describe our geography being that the area of the, the swamps that we grew that we that's what goes into the other term people of the degree swamps mm-hmm. because there's a certain type of clay that was prevalent in our territories and you can go into the economics of Haudenosaunee the the how the economy operated and how there was that that networking between the five nations and people so people needed clay pipes they would trade with the, the my ancestors whether it was maize whether it was flint whether it was certain minerals that were you can't grow very well in one area they would they would trade between each other of the five nations right so these are these are things that i keep in mind when i speak about my introduction it's not so cut and dry as i'm bobby my name is so and so my client is this my nation is that to really understand it in full requires an immersive experience and really thinking about and reflecting on these words. And that's what I want to share about my introduction and what I normally say. I'm also just at the early stages of I say, I say early stages, but people are telling me you're not your early stages. It's I think it's a matter of humbleness for me as a person, as an individual. But I say I say I'm in my early stages because I position myself in light of those elders who are like in their 60s and 70s. I forgot to mention this too. The Cayuga language speakers who I mentioned earlier, about 50 people in the world, approximately, most of them are over, like they're about 70 and older. So they're not your average 20-year-old, 15-year-old, might be some newer, there might be some more speakers at a younger age coming up now because of the revitalization and reclamation of our language and even resurgence of our language. But most of them are in, definitely in elders. And each year we lose a number of speakers. So within, I don't know how many years there are going to be, I at. Hate, I hate saying this, but like there's going to come a time when there's going to be less and less of them. And we're seeing that happen each year.
0: So... Yeah,
1: that's my introduction to who I am.
0: (laughs) I want to give a a bit of a context of the people who are listening. When I met Bobby, I was in my first year in the PhD here in Canada. And here comes this guy, super young guy, to talk to us about um, his knowledge. And you, like, in a room, and you may remember this, Bobby, um, is all these PhD students a little bit nervous, all of us, all there, (laughs) all of those started and then you arrive and we were not prepared for you to open your mouth like you just did right now and put in front of us all of these layers of knowledge and dimensions about about who you are and how do you live your knowledge and how do you get it. For me, and that's why Bobby is here in the program today as a guest, uh, which is a great honor. For me, it was, it, it just, um, I was so amazed about how in one question, like right now, an introduction can come all this context, like you just said, this immersive experience about who, a, what a person is. I wanted to ask you, Bobby, um, have you ever, like, were you always this way when you were growing up? As a kid, were you always immersed in this knowledge, or or is it something that you found out in the in your path, and then you you were just recovering? Was there a, a, a time in your life in which you were not as immersed in the knowledge, maybe looking on something so, or something else, or you or was it always an experience that was always in you?
1: Well, thank you for asking the question, Marisol, <laughs> and. I would say I was immersed in this life since I was a baby, right? I have a traditional name. I come from a I come from a family uh, on my father's side. Who, when my father speaks to an elder in our community, the elder said to my dad, "Your family is an old family." Like and she used the word "old" to describe that like my father's lineage are what we would call the traditional, one of the traditional families that had migrated to six nations and they can trace their settlement, they can, they can trace their ancestry back to the, to the Onondaga territories, like way back a number of like, I believe seven or eight generations ago. Like that's how far back they've done the lineage in terms of my father's side, the family. So all these teachings I have been immersed in and I argue it started before I was born and how I know this is these like I forget what they're called in English they're like wives tales or something they talk about what like this it's kind of like a superstition of what mother should do and should not do when they're pregnant I don't know because I haven't had a, I haven't been a father yet to go through that but I know when my mother was pregnant with me I was I'm the the fifth child I believe yeah, I'm the fifth child in my family, fifth five of seven, fifth child of seven children. And my grandmother, my father's side, was instrumental in teaching my mother and father a lot of our teachings. And I say before I was born because I know there would have, there would have been moments when my grandmother would have said to my mother, don't be doing this when you're when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And one example, I know Tom Porter talks about this in his book too, right? How you should be waking up early because your child will be up early with you rather than sleeping in. And I know Skahandone talks about this, like not standing in the doorway or when you're going up the stairs, you go all the way up first, even if you forget something, you don't stop halfway and then come back down. (laughs) So I know these, these wives' tales were Things that my grandmother had said to my mother. So even before I was born, that was, you know, these, these these things are being taught to me. And how I was being taught to me, our philosophy of pregnancy is that the mother, what the mother's learning, what the mother's thinking and feeling, uh, we as children in the womb are also feeling and experiencing what she's experiencing. So that's where it starts for me. But as I grew up, it also continued. This was something that was always in a conversation. And I was actually speaking to a guest that I had at at Brock University recently to do a teaching for some people at the university. And one of the things that we kind of had a a quick conversation about our upbringings. Uh, She's from Akwesasne, which is the Mohawk community near Cornwall, I believe, that straddles the American and Canadian border uh, also between New York State the province of Ontario as well as the province of Quebec here in Canada and one of the things that we laughed about is when I came to university conversations that I was having at home I thought normal everybody had these conversations and what I mean by that is things like the what I mentioned earlier the Hodian returning great law piece it's like it is the, the, if you're using nouns, it's, it's the constitution, if you're using that term, it's the constitution of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, mm-hmm. which are the five nations and later the sixth na- six nation Tuscarora. So we had these conversations each and every day and how it worked with my father. And this is something that I even spoke to my mother recently to really understand our teachings to really know it now requires embodiment of our teachings. So how that came to work within, within my family, my father would always tell stories or he'd always analyze things. He would always be observant of his surroundings. And when there was something that, not to say it was wrong, but there was something to question. He would bring in teachings. He would talk about creation story. He would talk about great law of peace. He talked about the peacemaker who brought, who brought our great law of peace and handsome Lake. He, he talked about this stuff in every day. So for me, that was my upbringing from like childhood to even to today. It's not something that had stopped. If anything, it had increased given that I'm in a position of being the educator now. So it's something that started from early on, but it's continuing to pick up pace because I'm also a teacher of Cuga language at Brock. I teach uh, undergraduate students, an introductory course. So it's something that comes up in conversation. And even with my friends who have who the friend, whether they're Haudenosaunee or not Haudenosaunee, I bring up these teachings that come from the Dakota Handsome Lake, because the community I come from, there's a more, um, I can't speak for the entire community, but from what I experienced, the people who I've worked with and learned from, there's a, a good presence of people who follow Code of Handsome Lake, the, the message that was brought to us in like the late 1700s by the, the, we call the prophet Handsome Lake, who was one of our hereditary chiefs at this time. Some people have disagreements about it. I've heard it being labeled as like a new religion, but I, I it's, it's complicated. But when I look at it, it's more it's more about what we can accept as people, what's permitted to accept. And there's a lot to it. It's not literal. People take it for a literal value when they hear the, hear the recital of the method and interpretations of using English. And there's a fixation on, this is, okay, it says literally, like an example, paint your house as white is one of the things that uh, it's described and People get offended. Might, might perceive it as literal. Well, actually, so it's saying I have to paint my house white. It's saying to be happy that you have a home, except that you have a home, and understand that each of our homes are different. But what's gonna there's there's gonna be some homes that are bigger. There's gonna be some homes that are smaller. But the bottom line is, no matter the size, no matter the shape of the home, it's still gonna be the same. We're still gonna have the same thing because that color white that's across each of the homes tells us that it reminds us that we all are we all have the same thing Mm -hmm. and that we're all the same people it's not literal but people people get literal in that sense right and that's what we we talked about
0: if you don't have the context and all these layers that you just talk about it's easy to just like you know simplify a teaching like that but when you come from those layers, and you have been experiencing like those teachings since the beginning, then the meaning changes because you have that framework of understanding in your brain already. So, it, yeah, I can see what you mean on on, on that regard. Somebody new at the law lo- and the knowledge might take everything literal and then like take it as a religion, when in reality, this is just like, well, these teachings for living. Mm-hmm. Right. Well,
1: and, and that's what I try to tell people I distinguish with religion. I'm not an expert. I don't have any experience with religion as well and faith, so I can't speak to detail in terms of that. But for me, our teachings are a way of life. Mm-hmm. What I see and how I know this, I see things as having spirit. Does it say it's religious? No, it's just a way of life for me. Why do we as people, when we eat food, we say "nyawa," like simple words of thank you. That's our teaching that we have to do when we're, in most case, cases, we have to say, I was taught in my family to say nyawa. and that was something we even do as well. Every day when we, we'd be at home, we would say nyawa. it's, and then it's followed with a response by people who are listening with a no, it, it changes depending on the community in terms of response, but we did that every day in our home. We'd say nyawa, and someone would respond with no. So little things like that, that I take for granted, but those were experiences that show this is something that was from early on in my life. And even more so, I attended a Cayuga Language Immersion Program that was, op- that was offered through a, one of our federal schools within Six Nations, Isle Thomas Elementary School. So it was a full immersion Cayuga language program <clears throat> that I had been en- enrolled in from kindergarten to grade three and then in grade four, I transitioned to a 50-50, which is a split between learning subjects in English and then learning subjects in Cayuga language. And my, many of my teachers are also people who, one, have, were first language speakers themselves, or Cayuga language speakers, who are some of who's still been teaching in the school to this day, right? So I had these people teaching my class. And these people are leaders within our, our longhouses. They're like people who are role models that we look up to for that we look up to for guidance in terms of understanding language or teachings, right? They're, they're those people who we are our role models, right? And that's so my teachers were. So that was another immersive experience because my parents were the generation in which they weren't taught the language. Any of the languages. So my my father, his mother, had spoken both Kiyuga language and the Anadaga language. So she was trilingual, you would say, in three languages, and she could speak. And there's one story in particular that always makes me kind of smile is when she would argue with her sister, to be my my dad's biological mother because my father was adopted. Um, his biological mother, they would start arguing in Onondaga language because, you know, siblings, they, they tend to argue with each other and they would laugh towards the end of it because and somehow in the midst of the conversation, they would switch from one language and then they would switch into to the Kyuga language and they'd be speaking in a different language. And it makes me laugh because it, it just goes to show like how how much of it was in our community. That's like not very long ago either. And what's also funny is when she would argue, try to argue, cause they'd argue with, they bicker with one. It's, it's like a, it's you do with your siblings. Not all, not all families do it, but there's that, there's been some experiences I also have too. It's not anything wrong. It's this, that's what you do with siblings. And my father always would snicker about this and he still does to this day. My biological grandmother would argue with her sister and she, her response would be, if you want to argue with me, argue with me in Onondaga or argue with me in Cayuga. And then they would switch, they would, then they would switch into the, the Cayuga language and speak, and speak it. And on my mother's side of the family, her parents were first language speakers in the Mohawk language. And again, they would speak Mohawk to one another, but there are that generation of people where they were ashamed for being uh, unguhoi, or we call ourselves as unguhoi, like real people, they were ashamed of that by things like society, the racism within society. And I remember my father telling my, my story that my grandmother shared with him that when her, I think I can't remember who it was, but when they were seeking to get a job located off the reserve, they were just told to go home because, quote, you're an Indian. No one wanted to hire an Indian. The only jobs we could get were on the farms and working like as uh, labor, right? As labor for the farms, paid labor for the farms. So that's kind of we were belittled. And for her, those impacts have, were profound. She did not want to teach my father the language because her words were, I want you to have a better life than I did. Mm-hmm. So... But what had happened back in the 80s, and there's kind of this phenomenon that happened across the world back in the 60s, it started. 60s, 70s, it started picking up speed and momentum. In the 80s, it continued. And even to this day, it's accelerating the, the revitalization movement of languages. So the Kyuga Language Program I went to had emerged during that era. And that's what my, my father put me in the program, all of us children, so that we would... Quote, know who we are. Because I asked him that one time, leaving my, my travels back to Peterborough, and he took me back to the, the bus station from Six Nations or the home community. And I asked him that question why did you put us in the Cuban the Language Immersion Program? Not that I had any resentment about it, I actually appreciated he did it. But for him, it was about I just want you to know who you are were his words that he said to me. He, he conjured his thoughts and sat there for a minute while he was driving, that's what his response was. So at school I was immersed within it, unknowingly because language and culture, they're they're of the same coin, right? One coin isn't complete and they're, they're very much intertwined with one another. So since I've been kindergarten, I've developed that skill of learning language. So now, being, becoming a language teacher, I've had to also challenge myself in ways recognizing that those I'm teaching are adults, whereas children, they can learn languages really fast. So yeah, I'm not not sure how we got to this point, but these are kind of the experiences I encountered growing up in my life, yeah.
0: So I have to ask Bobby, when you think when you're for example when you're mad and you t- t- think in your head being mad what is the language you think of or how do you think when you're like in this passionate state
1: currently it's it's predominantly the english language but sometimes there are words that come to me or they're not so much words either but they're also imagery, metaphors. So I also thinking metaphors, and those metaphors also come from our language. And there's a word, I can't remember where it is, but I remember hearing it in high school, and it's, a, it's from, from our ceremonies, and they, it says, it pierces the mind. And those words are very powerful. And, then, and I think of it like, what does that mean for something to pierce the mind? It's a, it's a very sharp like it's not a sharp word in, in any negative sense, but it's to cut through that disarray, that chaos that may be happening in your mind because our minds are wondrous machines. They're very they can be disorganized, but it's not in a negative sense. But it's because they're mind they're doing multiple things all at once. They're multitasking. So when something's can pierce through all that and get to your mind directly and get to get the point across yeah, that. That's what comes to my mind in terms of like imagery, but those images themselves I describe come from the language. So now for me, it's a matter of what are those words, what are those actual words? And I'm not just meaning, how do you say, go ask the person or go ask a question, right? So that's not like, I'm not saying, I go ask. It's, it's more implica- it's more complicated than that. And I'm really trying to understand those words because those words, like I said, pierces the mind, are words that we don't use in conversational language, because there's different types of language usage of our words. And this also differs than other European languages as well, because there's we have conversational language but we also have ceremonial language. And ceremonial language is only used during ceremonies, not in typical conversations. So for me, I'm getting back to thinking in that way and starting to bring that within my work. And those metaphors I use, I know for sure come from the words because people have translated those words and those words themselves are what I use. And the word, like I said earlier, What the English in nouns calls our original instructions, but one person in particular had translated as to what we're what we're taught to what we're told to believe is what he defined defined it as, or what what we're instructed to do, what we are told to do by our by our creator, but what we are told to do by him. Who is him? Right, that's our creator. So getting that, I'm. As a person, I always try to verbify things. I use that word verbify just to honor indigenous languages because we're a verb based language and seeing things as animate. So I'm not at that level yet where I'm thinking in language but I'm also building capacity. So when the time comes time for me, when I start my own family, that I'm able to deliver all these words and phrases to my children. And I firmly believe what their, what their environment moving the way it is that that will be nurtured, that their language will be nurtured and accepted, and they'll learn everything I know by the time they're 10. So I'm currently 27 right now. They might know all, all what I know within 10 years of their life. So if it took me 30 years, for example, to get to know what I know, they have that much more time to also continue their own learning.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned your age. I didn't want to ask, <laughs> like actively. Yeah, like it's it's actually um, it's incredible what you can achieve when you start being immersed in the in, in your culture since young age. Because at the age of 27, like you, you're able to draw all these layers of knowledge in a beautiful way, and and there's no it's not even it doesn't take an effort even for you. Like if, if people know you, you can tell it comes it comes naturally. I like what you said about the med- thinking in metaphors because I found out that people that is trying to recover their indigenous languages to learn them again, um, and that's when I'm one of those people. We often instead of like we try to remember the words, right? But it's more the idea behind the words because the language, as you just say, is an extension of us, which is an extension of the land, and there is this knowledge sort of like not hidden but like rewarded in each word and, each, and when they connect, when you connect two meanings together, they become way much more like a metaphor in terms of a huge teaching that can come just from one word, right? So I, I wanted to ask you something that is maybe a bit personal. <laughs> so what is the, the, the word that right now is, is, is helping you more to ground yourself in the work that you're doing? and what you want to do in the world.
1: So something that was so make you feel, making me feel grounded?
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: Well, there's one that always comes to my mind, but I'm also keeping in mind there's also different things, but I'm currently in the phase of my research where I'm looking to challenge myself and to think of how can I use our ways of knowing in the work that I'm doing. So I do have something figured out, but I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna hold it back just for reasons because.
0: are wise reasons because you always have a good reason to do things. <laughs> so
1: that's but for me, it's like being a PhD student and also living apart from community and being surrounded by different people than I normally would, it puts this pressure, on this external pressure on me to be a certain way. So what I mean by that, there's an expectation that, for example, working at Rock, that I have that amount of professionalism and I'm in a colonial institution. So there's an expectation of me that I conduct my way myself in a way that's um, not completely radical to the institution because I also recognize that being inclusive means working together, and you can't work together if you're over overtly radical, overly radical. So that's that's kind of a, a pressure I'm experiencing, and it's not anything negative. There's no I'm not saying that either. Even being in a PhD program, it's reading scholarship that's written in English by Indian authors, yes, it's helpful. But I also recognize this way of knowing too is, is um, different than what I'm used to, right? I'm used to being around um, my teachings. So I can easily get lost in all of this stuff. But things that ground me is just knowing everything I've been sharing thus far. It has gotten me this far in life already. It has been an inspiration for myself as a, as a person and keep doing, and keep inspired me to be capable of doing the things I'm doing right now. So I remember those teachings, those are things that bring me comfort. So one example I can share, and this is when I I encourage you to make note of in the, the talk, one teaching that makes me feel grounded is a passage within the Hansel Lake Code or the, the teaching. The, we call or the good, the good, the good message is what, what it translates into English. And it talks about the coming of education or what it back in the wording they call white man's education what it says in that passage in particular this is again a translation in english but it was very vivid and clear to me in high school because we studied this in one of my native studies classes in high school and it talks about this building that has no windows and they say when you look inside the building there's these children holding these items, and they're very, very hot, and they're burning the children's hands, uh, and that's like what they call, which is like a book, right? They're holding a book and burning their hands. It's not to say, again, it's not literal, but what it's actually describing is a severe discomfort to those who are choosing to go into that route. It's not saying it's a negative, but there's a there's a level of discomfort within that, and when they're observing, this is Handsome Lake with the messengers who are doing, who are traveling along this path. And this is recited in the, the, the ceremony. As they're walking along the path, when they saw this red hot building, they seen footsteps. And they say, all the footsteps were going inward to the building. Like you could, you could tell people were walking into the building. And one of the things that had said, the direction of the footsteps were facing the building. Most of the footsteps she seen on the ground were facing going into the building. There were some coming outwards from the building. It's not to say it was a prison or some type of system like such, but the metaphor, what are they describing in terms of why there are so more footsteps going to it. You've very few coming back. There should be just as much coming back as there is going into the building. And what they had described there these are the messengers explaining to handsome lake that he did that he like all these messages i'm telling you too are things that handsome lake had recited to people and as time went on there was an air a moment in history where i think about 40 50 years or i forget how many years from when he stopped reciting it back in 1815 or something to 1850 or whatever i don't know exactly i'm not i can't remember exact dates but um, people who had worked with him, who had traveled with him, and that's how they revitalized it and how they began retelling these stories. In this particular passage, the messengers were telling him just to be cautious of the system, be cautious of these ways of knowing. In particular, if you are to send 12 of your children. To this, to this school, you'll be lucky if one comes home. I'm not sure whether the, the people get caught up with it or it's to do with the missions at the time, influenced by what the current uh, landscape was like in regards to the settler and Haudenosaunee relation. But there was that fear of education because then then in the 1800s, early 1800s, we recognized education then was a force of assimilation. You know, this is before policies ramped up after the war of 1812. So this is pre-war of 1812. So there was a fear or cost that the be a fear or caution of education. And why I share this passage and why I think about it is because when I came to university. I was put in that very situation. I, it came time for me, because we're using that analogy. This is again, using that metaphor as a, as a navigating life and what makes you feel grounded is I was put in that position where now I entered that building. And then the, the he's the Chair of Indigenous Knowledge at Trent, who you've worked with, Marisol. He, he knew this passage talking to you about tonight and he asked me do you want to be that one child who returns home so since then that stuck with me and ever since then i've been used that as a strategy to bring myself into my work to if there's an inch i found a mile right that whole metaphor of to, like, there's microaggression, micro resistance in terms of you're still doing what you need to do in terms of the course and what you're expected to do by instructors whether it's indigenous studies or history because those are my background but I brought in my teachings because those to me were, are important and that was one strategy that kind of got me thinking how is it I'm not, how is it I'm not going to forget who it, who it is I am And that was one thing that was a reminder for me and brought a good feeling of being grounded. Yeah, I just wanted to share that with you.
0: Bobby nos cuenta, con sus propias palabras, que ha visto pasar 27 inviernos y que pertenece al clan de los Ciervos Bola, de la gente de las Pipas de Arcilla, que se conocen más comúnmente como la gente de la nación Cayuga, en la cultura Haudenosaunee, aquí en Canadá. Bobby nos explica que esta forma de presentarse sigue el protocolo de los miembros de la comunidad Haudenosaunee, y que es una forma característica de presentarse de muchas naciones indígenas para poder reconocerse inmediatamente e identificar el el linaje familiar, los ancestros y las comunidades donde habitan. Bobby nos cuenta que él pertenece a la comunidad de Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, o las seis naciones del territorio río grande, y que ha pasado la mayor parte de su tiempo en su comunidad formando y nutriendo relaciones sólidas con su gente. Bobby también nos cuenta que él se identifica como un aprendiz y hablante del idioma Cayuga. Y aunque lo pueda entender, hablar, leer y escribir con fluidez, de igual manera se llama a sí mismo aprendiz, porque el idioma Cayuga es tan vasto que lo sigue aprendiendo continuamente. El inglés es el segundo idioma en su familia y fue aprendido por sus padres como resultado del sistema de escuelas residenciales y la asimilación coercitiva a través de la educación colonial aquí en Canadá. Bobby ahora dedica gran parte de sus esfuerzos a promover el idioma Cayuga, ya que solo existen 61 personas que pueden hablarlo en todo el mundo. Actualmente, su investigación está orientada en documentar cómo los programas de recuperación de lenguas indígenas apoyan las cuatro dimensiones del desarrollo personal que están en el centro de la identidad indígena, específicamente la de las seis naciones del pueblo Haudenosaunee y muy puntualmente la de la nación Cayuga, Estas cuatro dimensiones son la espiritual, la emocional, la física y la mental. Lamentablemente, estas cuatro dimensiones de aprendizaje holístico o aprendizaje como curación se devalúan o ignoran con mucha frecuencia en los actuales modelos de educación occidental convencionales. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us to find out more about our guests and the topics discussed in this show, please do so through our Facebook page Perspectives from Abya Yala and Beyond or via email to perspectivestrendradio@gmail.com. Gracias por escucharnos. Para contactarse con nosotros o encontrar más información acerca de nuestros invitados y los temas del programa, por favor síganos en nuestra página de Facebook Perspectivas desde Abiayala y más allá, o por email a programa perspectivas trend@gmail.com. Masekwali Yowali, Makwali Ochtli, Clase Kamati